Hi everyone, and welcome to the first official episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and I'm really glad that you're here today. I have quite an interesting case for you today. I think it's going to be a long one, so I hope we can get off on the right foot here. I did want to say also that I do have an email for the podcast that you can hit me up at. It's crimeopediapod at hotmail.com. Crimeopedia, just like encyclopedia like the name of the podcast you're listening to right now. You get what I'm saying. But hit me up if you have any case suggestions or just want to chat about something you heard on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. And any constructive criticism is greatly appreciated. This is my first podcast and I'm taking on this monster of a project all by myself. And so, hey, if you got any advice, I'd love to hear it. All right, now that that's out of the way, I think we can jump right in. church in Wellesley area of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, also known as Toronto's Gay Village, or just The Village, has been an LGBTQ2S plus oriented sanctuary in the city for decades. It encloses an area east of the University of Toronto St. George campus, is just north of Ryerson University, and is about a 45-minute walk from the CN Tower. The area inhabits a community of LGBTQ2S people and is recognized as a staple of Toronto. Many people also live in the nearby residential areas of Cabbage Town, St. Lawrence, Riverdale, the Annex, St. Jamestown, and the Garden District. The village is home to the 519 Community Center, which provides a variety of LGBTQ2S services, varying from community support, education, housing services, legal services, and trans-specific resources. As well, located in Barbara Hall Park, just north of Wellesley Street East, houses an AIDS memorial where a candlelight vigil is held every year during Pride Week in June to remember those in the community lost to AIDS. For many decades, this community has been a tight-knit treasure, a historic landmark of culture functioning to cultivate a safe space for LGBTQ2S plus people, both young and old. There are 11 bars in the immediate Church in Wellesley area. Locals meet here just as they would in any other city with a prominent nightlife. Gay men in the village are able to browse and chat with other local gay men on dating apps such as Grindr and Growler and Silver Daddies and many more. It's not uncommon for these men to meet up at one of the many bars in the village and people looked out for each other. The bartenders knew the regulars and people were always acquainted with whoever was around. Just like the people in the village knew each other, people also knew Bruce MacArthur. He was an older, frosty-looking man who was self-employed as a landscaper and even worked as a mall Santa at one point. Born in Lindsay, Ontario and raised in a farm in Argyle, Ontario, MacArthur recalls working very hard to keep up with the chores on the farm. His parents were both religious, his mother being Catholic and his father being Presbyterian, which caused arguments in the home resulting in tension that never truly subsided. His father was strict, and MacArthur never really felt like he had his father's approval. In a 2003 pre-sentencing report, he speculates that it's possible his father knew Bruce was gay, and that's really why they never got along. 
Despite the same-sex attractions, MacArthur married his longtime friend at the age of 23 and enjoyed a life with her together, both being heavily involved in the church and eventually having two children. By all accounts, their married life was normal. That was until Bruce was approaching 40 and had come to the realization that he could not deny himself the experiences of his sexuality anymore and began seeking extramarital affairs. After a year of this, he finally came out to his wife, who was eventually supportive, and then his kids, which was subsequently followed by a divorce. He then moved to Toronto and began living his life as an openly gay man. Skandarja Navaratnam, or Skanda, known by his friends, was a 40-year-old Sri Lankan refugee who came to Toronto wanting to live openly gay and be able to support his family financially while across the world. He was described as a live wire, someone who is charismatic, fun-loving, an animal lover, an environmentalist, and a joy to be around. Skanda lived in Toronto's gay village for some time and was very familiar with the area. On September 6, 2010, during Labor Day weekend, he was seen leaving one of the many bars in the village called Zippers near Church and Carlton Street with an unknown male around 2 a.m. Skanda's best friend, Jean-Guy Cloutier, was accustomed to texting with Skanda every morning. He described Skanda as the most outgoing person, took care of his appearance, was well-groomed, and he made sure he was always seen in a positive light. The morning of September 7th, Cloutier didn't hear from Skanda as he usually would, and after a few days, he knew that this was seriously abnormal. It was not like Skanda to go radio silent, so Cloutier decided to report him missing officially four days later on September 10th, 2010. Abdul Bazir Faizi was a 42-year-old Afghan immigrant who lived near the village with his wife and children. He was keeping his sexuality away from his family at the time while exploring it openly but on the side without their knowledge. He did truly love his children though, more than anything, and near the time of his disappearance, his friend reports that he was working overtime at his job in Mississauga, a part of the greater Toronto area, to ensure that his kids would get absolutely everything on their Christmas lists. He was described as funny and smart and incredibly hardworking. Just after Christmas, on December 28th of 2010, Abdul Bazir called his wife to let her know that he'd be working a bit late, but he'd be home soon. That night, before coming home, he made stops in the gay village at the Black Eagle Bar and the Steamworks Bathhouse. When he had failed to return home, he was reported missing the next day by his cousin to Peel Regional Police. Only a week later, his 2002 Nissan Sentra was found abandoned on Moore Avenue near a ravine, approximately an 11-minute drive from the Church in Wellesley area. Majid Kehan was a 58-year-old in 2012, and just like Abdul Bazir Faizi, was also an Afghan immigrant. He was the youngest of his siblings, and he had come to Canada in the 1980s with his wife, but in 2002, they got a divorce. At the time of Majid's disappearance, he was living in the Toronto gay village and was an active member of the community really since the 1990s. He was known to frequent the Black Eagle Bar and reportedly had suffered from adverse mental health after the Soviet-Afghan War, which led to his heavy alcohol usage. 
but because he was not out to his family at the time of his disappearance, it wasn't unusual for Majid to slip in and out of the gay village for a few months and then he would return. In fact, after his disappearance, his apartment was held for him in the village, thinking he may have simply left for a while in order to satisfy the responsibilities of his other life with his family outside of the village. Majid was last seen on October 18th, 2012, near the area of Young and Alexander Street after a family gathering. When nobody had heard from him and his family for some time afterwards, his adult son reported him missing a week later on October 25th of 2012. Karushna Kanagaratnam, like Skanda Navaratnam, was a Sri Lankan man. Karushna was a 37-year-old asylum seeker. He had come to Canada in hopes of a brighter future and had arrived in 2010 aboard the MV Sunsea cargo ship. He had worked odd jobs in Toronto to send money home to his family and was described as the responsible one. He had applied for refugee status, which was denied, and his subsequent appeal was also denied. Following this, he was on a federal deportation order and his family had assumed that after their last discussion in August of 2015, that he had went into hiding because of this. His living situation at the time was unknown, and because of that, he was never reported missing. Sarush Mamudi was living with his wife in the South Cedarbrae area of Scarborough in the Greater Toronto area at the time of his disappearance. He was 50 years old and an Iranian refugee. Sarush was described as having an incredible sense of humor and was super easygoing. He had moved to the GTA in 2008 after leaving Barrie, Ontario, where he had worked in an automotive parts factory. His friend and former colleague, Brett Morrison, said that everyone who knew Sarush liked him. He was last seen on August 14, 2015, near his home in the South Cedar Bray neighborhood, and was scheduled to work the next day at approximately noon, but Sarush never showed up. Later, on August 22nd of 2015, he was reported missing to police by his son-in-law. There's only one small connection between Sarush Mamudi and the gay village of Toronto, unlike the other men I've just discussed. He had a previous relationship with a woman he had met there a few years before he had met his wife, but otherwise his current address was almost 40 minutes away from the church in Wellesley area and is otherwise not associated with the area. Dean Lissowick, on the other hand, was a staple figure in the village. He was technically homeless with no fixed address, but he frequented the shelter system and was last seen on April 21st in 2016 in the Scott Mission on Spadina Avenue near Chinatown, just west of the Church in Wellesley area. Dean was 43 to 44 years old, depending on which source you read, and is described as street savvy and not easily trusting or fooled, but incredibly thoughtful and caring for others. Dean would often stick up for sex workers in the village if he saw somebody giving him a hard time. He was always eager to help out and was known to volunteer to set up tents to house the feed program for homeless people that was run in the Allen Gardens of the Church in Wellesley area. People in the area say that even if they didn't personally know Dean, they knew of him and they knew that he was a great guy. He was said to be incredibly artistic and would send his mother handmade cards for special occasions, even though his declining mental health had led him to living on the streets some time before his disappearance. Unfortunately, because of his lack of fixed address, when Dean was not seen after April 21st in 2016, he also was never reported missing. 
Salim Essin previously lived in Istanbul, Turkey, and studied philosophy in university before moving to Canada in 2013 and settling down in Toronto's gay village. Salim was 44 years old and described as a kind, loving, trusting, and non-judgmental person, as well as a reliable friend. He has struggled with addiction, but in 2017 was trying to turn over a new leaf. His good friend Richard Harup was helping keep Salim accountable, meeting with him for coffee before counseling appointments at the St. Stephen's Community House, and keeping tabs on him. In late March of 2017, Salim was enrolled in a week-long peer training course at the same community center which he had just completed, and was talking with Richard, saying he felt really proud of himself. According to a manager at the community center, Gab Lawrence, Salim had reached a turning point in his life and was set to become a fantastic peer worker, full of compassion, wisdom, and a sincere desire to help others. His friend Richard was in the hospital, having just undergone ankle surgery, and was really happy to hear that Salim was feeling good about himself and his newest accomplishment. They were making plans for Salim to come visit in hospital when suddenly the text from him just stopped. Richard wasn't hearing anything more from Salim and unfortunately never would ever again. Salim Essen was last seen on April 20th of 2017 during Easter weekend and was reported missing shortly afterwards. Andrew Kinsman was an outreach coordinator and activist with the Toronto HIV AIDS Network and a longtime volunteer with the AIDS Foundation. A former bartender of the Black Eagle Bar in the village, at the time living in Cabbage Town near the village, he was the superintendent of his apartment building where his love of baking flourished and he found sanctuary with his beloved pet cat. Andrew was described by a friend and neighbor to be one of the most predictable and responsible people she had ever met in her life. And he was a champion for social justice. The year before his disappearance, Andrew was fighting cancer. A tenant of the apartment building Andrew lived at said that as they grew close, she watched him fight this cancer and recover with sheer will and grit. He was 49 years old on June 26, 2017, the day after the Toronto Pride Parade, and he was last seen near his home in Cabbage Town, just south of the gay village. Surveillance video of his apartment would later show Andrew voluntarily getting into a 2004 Red Dodge Grand Caravan around 3pm that day, and he was never seen again. A few days later, his disappearance was reported to police on June 29th, which kicked off the investigation into his whereabouts, resulting in police initiating Project PRISM. Project PRISM was the more responsible older brother of Project Houston, which was a task force initiative set up in 2012 to investigate the suspicious disappearances of Skanda Navaratnam, Abdul Bazir Faizi, and Majid Kehan. This investigation prompted Peel Regional Police to obtain a warrant to search the home of one James Brunton of London, Ontario. This warrant turned up nothing relevant to the disappearances, although some child porn charges were laid against James Brunton, and eventually he was discounted as a suspect into the disappearances of the three men from Toronto's gay village. After the usage of Viclass, the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System set in place for investigators from different regions of Canada to monitor and compare known offenders and their crimes. 18 months later, in April 2014, Project Houston was closed due to insufficient evidence of criminal activity. 
This time, with Project PRISM, beginning in August of 2017, Toronto Police would be investigating the disappearances of Salim Essen and Andrew Kinsman with a fine-tooth comb. One man was interviewed in Project Houston, not as a suspect, but as a witness. His name? Bruce MacArthur. Bruce had known Skanda Navaratnam since 1999 and employed him at his landscaping business. Although he denied it to police initially, they were also involved romantically for some time. Additionally, Bruce could also be tied to Majid Kehan as everyone in the village would see them talking together at the Black Eagle Bar. After the police interview, Bruce was set free and never given a second thought, but he would come up later in Project Prism. In 2003, Bruce was charged with one count of assault causing bodily harm to a man by the name of Mark Henderson. Mark Henderson was a nurse, a model, an actor, and a former sex worker in the village, and MacArthur beat him within an inch of his life with an iron pipe in the late afternoon of October 31st, 2001. Mark was walking home alone up to the back entrance of the apartment building he lived at at the time. MacArthur had ran up behind him as if he was just trying to catch the door, and so Mark held it open for him. As he approached his apartment door and pulled out his keys trying to unlock it, MacArthur started beating him in the back of the head with this metal pipe. Henderson said later in an interview, Every muscle in his face was clenched. He was full of rage. I remember feeling the indentation in my skull. He had popped my skull in. I have a nursing background. I saw cerebral spinal fluid and blood coming down and I thought, I'm going to lose consciousness in a matter of seconds. He was not going to stop. After the events of this violent, unprovoked attack took place as recounted by Mark Henderson many years later in an interview, x-rays later showed a compound skull fracture in Mark's head and he needed six weeks of rehabilitation and care, but thankfully, he survived. Bruce MacArthur immediately went to turn himself into police. In 2003, the Crown Prosecutor at the time recommended jail for this offense, but the judge decided against it, likely due to the psychological evaluation MacArthur was given by one Dr. Marie-France Dion, which stated that MacArthur was passive and had a tendency to procrastinate and liked his daily routine. Her evaluation painted Bruce MacArthur as a harmless, simple man who acted out during an isolated incident and was apparently unlikely to reoffend. The court reports also mentioned that MacArthur had suffered from epilepsy since age 25, for which he insinuates some blame for the violent incident against Mark Henderson, stating that he had blacked out and wasn't sure if he had a seizure or not, but either way, he had lost consciousness during the attack. Despite his lack of cognitive awareness at the time of the incident, MacArthur pleaded guilty to the assault. Instead of jail time, the judge opted for a conditional sentence of house arrest, forbade MacArthur from the church in Wellesley area for two years, and forced him to submit a DNA profile to the court on April 11, 2003. The judge cited this light sentence was a result of the guilty plea as well as Dr. Dion's evaluation, which painted him as completely unmemorable and indistinguishable from any other average man with mild passive-aggressive tendencies. Immediately after being interviewed as a witness during Project Houston in 2014, where he admitted to having a relationship with Skanda Navaratnam, Bruce applied for and was granted a record suspension which expunged this assault charge from his record. If police had simply run Bruce's name through ViClass before or even during the interview for Project Houston in 2013, a year before the record suspension, they would have gotten a hit with his violent criminal background. 
But after MacArthur successfully got his violent criminal background expunged from his record, police were none the wiser. Project PRISM was led by Detective Hank Insigna, who was accompanied by other officers from Toronto Homicide, some from the Sex Crimes Unit, and six members from Toronto's 51 Division, the broader area encompassing the gay village, three of those officers being from Project Houston. Detective Insigna stated in an interview that the kickoff for Project PRISM happened after a crucial piece of evidence was discovered in the disappearance of Andrew Kinsman, which very easily could have been lost, but he didn't specify what this evidence could be. This piece of evidence could have been the surveillance footage of Kinsman entering that 2004 Red Dodge Grand Caravan outside of his apartment around 3pm, or it could have been the note on the calendar in Kinsman's home that was dated for June 26, stating only one word, Bruce. Police checked citywide automotive registrations and found that there were over 6,000 red Dodge Grand Caravan models in Toronto. Fortunately for them, their search was narrowed quite a bit when they cross-referenced these records with the name Bruce and found that only five of them belonged to anyone with that name. Out of those five, only one of them was a 2004 registration with the last name MacArthur. This discovery prompted police to make a visit to MacArthur's residence in early fall of 2017, an apartment inside of 95 Thorncliffe Park Drive, but it was soon realized that the van in question was no longer at the property. In October of the same year, police were able to recover the vehicle. Bruce had sold his van to someone by the name of Dominic on September 16th. Of course, they towed it and wanted to run some forensic analysis on it, and so they did, and it was discovered that DNA belonging to Andrew Kinsman as well as Salim Essen was found inside the vehicle. Prosecuting attorney Michael Cantlin later mentioned in his opening statement that blood evidence from both Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen was found both in the front passenger area and the trunk of Bruce's red caravan. This information granted police the ability to execute a search warrant on MacArthur's apartment for December 5th. In the meantime, as they were looking into Bruce MacArthur's life, occupation, general whereabouts, police were notified that he was granted access to several different residences, any of which he could be found at at any given time. In November of 2017, before the warrant of Bruce's apartment was executed, the police brought cadaver dogs to a home on Mallory Crescent owned by an older couple. These people let MacArthur use their garage as an area for storage for his landscaping equipment since he'd had no room in his apartment, and in exchange, he would come over and do landscaping work for them for free. The dogs did not indicate to the presence of human remains or anything else nefarious at this time, but this would not be the last time that police would visit this home. The warrant on Bruce's apartment was conducted covertly, with officers having eyes on MacArthur while he was out of the home. The search had to be cut short due to MacArthur unexpectedly deciding to make his way back home, but police would return to his residence on Thorncliffe Park Drive just two days later on December 7th to finish the job. It's unclear if he knew, but the hammer was about to come down on Bruce MacArthur. Police seized a hard drive from Bruce MacArthur's residence at some point during the warrants, and on January 17th of 2018, the analysis of that hard drive was completed, which yielded indisputable evidence against him that Bruce MacArthur was indeed the correct suspect into the disappearances of Salim Essen and Andrew Kinsman. 
Bruce MacArthur had tried but failed to successfully delete an incredible number of indecent images off of his computer, all of which were decedent victims, staged and posed, dressed up, and then photographed post-mortem. The plethora of post-mortem imaging that Bruce MacArthur was in possession of was enough evidence for police to place him on 24-hour surveillance, and the police were told to make an arrest the instant that they had eyes on him alone with somebody else. The very next day, on January 18th of 2018, MacArthur was seen entering his apartment with another gentleman he had met on Growler, and Toronto police made the call. MacArthur was arrested inside his apartment, and thankfully his male accomplice was physically unharmed. But some immediate evidence prompted police to charge MacArthur then and there with the first-degree murder of Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. Some news outlets speculate that this immediate evidence may have been the trophies that MacArthur had kept that belonged to some of his victims, such as jewelry and a notebook found in the apartment. Detective Insigna stated that on the day of the arrest, he had had a good idea of how the victims died, even without their bodies. I'm sure the post-mortem imaging helped with that. Later that same day, on January 18th of 2018, police executed five additional warrants, including four residences in Toronto and one in Maddox, Ontario. Two of the properties were owned by longtime friends of MacArthur, and another was owned by an ex-boyfriend. The owners of the home on Mallory Crescent, where cadaver dogs had already been, were barred from the residence so a proper search could begin that extended all the way down into a ravine towards the back of their home. On January 19th, the cadaver dogs were brought back to the home on Mallory Crescent, and this time they had indicated to a set of large planter boxes which had been frozen to the ground due to Canada's harsh winter. Police had brought in space heaters to thaw the ground and release these planters, and on January 29th, the first set of dismembered skeletal remains was found, which contained skeletal remains from three different individuals. This came after only a search of two out of the 12 planter boxes available on the property. Police decided to subsequently extend the murder charges to include that of Majid Kehan, Sarush Mahmoodi, and Dean Lisowick. On February 8th, police recovered three more sets of remains, one of which being ID'd through fingerprints was Andrew Kinsman. On February 23rd, Bruce MacArthur was charged with the murder of Skanda Navaratnam, whose remains were also found in a planter on Mallory Crescent. On March 5th, police had announced that they had found additional remains of an individual who they were struggling to identify and made the controversial decision to release a digitally enhanced and edited post-mortem photograph of this victim. The decedent was identified on April 16th as Karushna Kumar Kanagaratnam with the help from an international agency. If you recall, Karushna was not reported missing because he was on a deportation order and his family thought he was in hiding. On April 11th, MacArthur was charged with the murder of Abdul Bazir Faizi as well. Police in the meantime were conducting a more detailed and thorough investigation of MacArthur's apartment, which concluded on May 11th, yielding almost 20,000 photos into evidence and seizing almost 2,000 tangible items. Some of these items included a duffel bag, which contained duct tape, a surgical glove, rope, zip ties, a black bungee cord, and syringes, as well as a bracelet belonging to Skanda Navaratnam some jewelry belonging to Dean Lissowick, and a notebook belonging to Salim Essen. 
It came out that MacArthur used fake names online, met men through dating apps, and made himself appear to be sexually diverse and open to exploration in an attempt to lure as many men as possible to his profile, and then selectively targeted men who either had varying addresses or had not come out to their families. MacArthur targeted vulnerable individuals, asylum seekers, homeless individuals, and those still in the closet. It also came out that in Bruce MacArthur's vehicle, there was not only two DNA profiles, but four, as well as a fur coat, which was found in the van that Bruce used to stage, pose, and photograph his victims in post-mortem before dismembering and disposing of them. MacArthur had full, undisturbed access to the home on Mallory Crescent where he would dispose of his victims at will as long as the owners weren't home. Most of his victims went missing around holidays, Skanda Navaratnam during Labor Day weekend, Abdul Bezier Fazi after Christmas, Dean Lissowick during Easter weekend, Andrew Kinsman during Pride week, and the list goes on. The owners of the Mallory Crescent residence had a cottage out of town that they would often tend to during the year and travel to during these holidays. Bruce MacArthur would have not only been a familiar sight in the neighborhood of this home, but he would have also been completely unbothered by anyone else. Police returned to this home in the summer of 2018 when all the winter frost had finally melted away and they were able to uncover additional pieces of human remains almost every single day between July 14th and July 30th. Straight away, there was a publication ban on the court proceedings, but that did not stop the media from reporting on this case. Bruce remained in custody at the Toronto South Detention Centre under suicide watch until October 22, 2018. Represented by defense attorney James Miglin, Bruce MacArthur made his first court appearance where he waived his right to a preliminary hearing and was ordered to be put on trial for eight counts of first-degree murder. Former detective Kevin Bryan with the York Regional Police stated that the amount of evidence needed to be booked, bagged, and disclosed to the defense was enough to make a fair trial years away. But permitting a not guilty plea, Justice John McMahon ordered the trial must be completed before August of 2020. The sheer amount of evidence compounded with the incessant and obsessive media coverage made this case a monster, and the court wanted to ensure that if a trial was to take place, it would be speedy and just. However, on January 29th of 2019, Bruce MacArthur pled guilty to all eight counts of first-degree murder, whispering a quiet and cowardly guilty between each reading of each charge, resulting in an automatic life sentence. MacArthur's sentencing hearing was held on February 4th of 2019. The prosecution was asking for a period of 50 years parole ineligibility, citing how particularly egregious MacArthur's crimes were, his lack of remorse, the betrayal of trust upon his victims, not to mention how MacArthur had posed a threat to the community up until the very day he was apprehended and placed in custody. Mind you, they arrested him on the cusp of potentially creating a ninth victim. This 50-year period would put MacArthur well beyond his lifespan, as he was 66 years old at the time of his arrest. The defense, albeit doing their job, stated that this was especially harsh given his age, and cited that MacArthur should see mercy given he waived his preliminary hearing and pled guilty to all the charges, sparing the families of the victims a trial. 
During the sentencing hearing, Crown Prosecuting Attorney Michael Cantlin read a 36-page agreed statement of facts in court which brought many new details of the case to light. These documents included details about the trophies MacArthur had kept of his victims, how he lured his victims, how he staged and photographed them before they were dismembered and disposed of. It also came out that Abdul Bazir Faizi, the 42-year-old Afghan immigrant working in Mississauga, who had disappeared shortly after Christmas Day, was murdered inside of the home of someone Bruce MacArthur was house-sitting for, only a short distance from where his 2002 Nissan Sentra was found on Moore Avenue. Upon returning home, the homeowners reported a large, dark stain on the floor of their bedroom, to which MacArthur apologized for, stating it was Coca-Cola and that he had tried to clean it up. Although no evidence came up in my research about whether this stain was tested for any sort of biological evidence or if it was simply cleaned up by the homeowners when they arrived home, Bruce did admit that Faisy was murdered in their home. Additionally, during the hearing, it came out that Bruce had used their shed to store his most unusual trophy, bags of human hair from his victims. On February 8th, 2019, Justice Mick Mahone sentenced Bruce MacArthur to life in prison with a parole eligibility period of 25 years. Bruce MacArthur will be eligible for parole when he is 91 years old. However, many news reports have stated that he is overweight with type 2 diabetes and is expected to die in prison. Justice McMahon described MacArthur's crimes as pure evil with no evidence of remorse and mentioned that he certainly would have continued killing if not apprehended. Arguably one of the most controversial aspects of Bruce MacArthur's case was the lack of Toronto police to adequately respond to the cries from the community who had suspected for some time that someone sinister was lurking amongst them in the gay village. Up until only a month before MacArthur's arrest in December of 2017, police stated publicly that there was no evidence of a serial killer operating in the Church and Wellesley area, despite this being smacked down in the middle of Project Prism. Yet the next month in January 2018, we know that a serial killer is entirely responsible for the deaths of the men in the village. A director of the Church and Wellesley Neighborhood Association, Nikki Ward, begged the question as to why the gay community had not been listened to earlier. Mark Henderson himself, the victim from the 2001 Halloween attack by Bruce MacArthur, states that he did warn people about Bruce after the fact. Detective Insignia stated that police did know something was up during Project Houston way back when, but he couldn't speak on the logistics of the matter without evidence at the time. The Toronto Police spokesperson, Megan Gray, noted that there were theories about a serial killer circulating around Toronto, but none of them could be substantiated with evidence at the time either. At the time of Bruce's arrest, the only warning sent out by police to the public thus far was to be cautious about dating apps and nothing further than that, which people were exceptionally upset about given the fact that after Bruce was arrested, the police admitted to knowing something was going on as early as Project Houston days. What we also know is that Bruce MacArthur was violent even before he was a killer. Criminologist and professor at Western University in London, Ontario, Michael Artfield, suggested that MacArthur's depravity was indicative of a killer who had been perfecting his craft for some time, and suggested that his crimes could possibly be traced back decades. 
It was projected by some sources that MacArthur could have been the longest running serial killer in history, and with a past of being employed as a traveling salesman before a landscaper, it is now the job of Toronto police to comb through murders dating back as early as 1975 and occurring anywhere in the province of Ontario. Which in October 2018 is exactly what homicide detective David Dickinson said was going on. Yet no connections have been made at this time and nothing new has come out about this since his arrest. Waterloo Regional Police inquired about the possibility of MacArthur being connected to the disappearance of one David McDermott, who was living in downtown Kitchener, Ontario in 2002 at the time he went missing. As well, there was some investigation into the potential connection of the case of John Riley, originally from Meaford, Ontario, who had moved to Toronto to find landscaping work and disappeared from the Church and Wellesley area in May 2013. After Bruce MacArthur's arrest, a 52-year-old teacher from Thunder Bay, Ontario who knew Bruce MacArthur had stated that they had reconnected on the dating app Bear411 and had made plans to meet for dinner in the gay village during April of 2017. After this dinner, the man alleges they got into MacArthur's vehicle where they began kissing and undressing until MacArthur suddenly grabbed the man's neck and began twisting it in a violent manner, forcing his face down into MacArthur's lap. Luckily, this man was able to escape, but there was no incident report made until after Bruce was arrested a year later. Additionally, in July of 2017, another surviving victim came forward saying that MacArthur reached out to him through a dating app and invited him over for sexual relations. This victim said that him and MacArthur poured some drinks and he had actually asked for his own drink to be spiked with GHB or roofies, in an attempt to heighten the sexual experience about to take place. After some time, the victim began sweating and fearing that he had been overdosed with the drug, but that did not stop MacArthur from pursuing what he wanted. He ignored the pleas of his victim and the safe words, and after his arrest, it was found that Bruce had photographs of this victim in what police call a kill position. Supposedly, a roommate came home and interrupted the affair, which thankfully resulted in the survival of this young man. On June 20th of 2016, MacArthur and another unidentified man were meeting up in the back of a McDonald's parking lot in North York after convening with each other on a dating app. Once they began to engage in sexual relations in the back of MacArthur's vehicle in the parking lot, Bruce had grabbed this man's neck violently as well and started attacking him, just like his last unsuccessful victim. But luckily, this man was able to get away also. Immediately after, this victim called 911 and made his way over to the police station to file a report, but MacArthur had followed him and contested his claims, saying that the sex that was happening was consensual and any harm that was done to the victim was in the interest of kinks. No incident report was filed for this interaction with police whatsoever, and the arresting officers were only made aware of this incident after the January 18th arrest of Bruce MacArthur. There were photographs of this victim in Bruce MacArthur's possession wearing the same fur coat that he had used to stage and pose his other decedent victims, which were discovered after the fact. This incident led to an internal investigation of the Toronto police, because out of all of Bruce's violent outbursts and attempts to kill, this was the one that should have tipped police officers off to his violent tendencies. The Church and Wellesley community had been advocating for years that there was indeed a serial offender on the loose, and this assault in particular could have been the one to end it all. This fact has been a large point of contention in the case of Bruce MacArthur. 
Had police made seemingly obvious connections sooner, taken the community seriously sooner, or simply filed an incident report according to protocol sooner, then potentially some lives could have been spared. Michael Artfield, as mentioned before, was also critical of the Toronto Police for not warning the public sooner about Bruce MacArthur being a serial offender. He said that an arrest could have been made sooner, citing similarities with the Seminole Heights killer in Florida, where in 2017, police had warned the public of a potential serial murderer, which led to over 5,000 tips and an arrest shortly after. Additionally, allegations of systemic racism seeping through into the investigation has also made headlines. Project Houston, which was responsible for investigating the suspicious disappearances of Skanda Navaratnam, Majid Kahan, and Abdul Bazir Faizi, all immigrant men, was not nearly as large or successful as Project Prism, which was started after the disappearance of Andrew Kinsman, being the only white victim aside from Dean Lissowick, notably the only white victim who wasn't homeless. Detective Insigna denies these allegations of racial bias, stating that Project Prism was simply a larger investigation, but there is no denying that the effort to find Andrew Kinsman well surpassed the initiatives for the other seven victims. Jamie Sampa from the 509 Community Center in Toronto's Gay Village noted this exact fact in her victim impact statement. This case brought to light many faults existing within the Toronto Police and surrounding areas departments. Bruce MacArthur single-handedly ripped to shreds the omnipresent trust and sense of community that the Church and Wellesley area worked so hard every day to build and enjoy with each other. He successfully managed to destroy the lives of countless people, both victims and their families, undetected for way too long. Most of these victims were especially vulnerable, and many had come to Toronto, Canada for a good life and a fresh start. Although the coronavirus pandemic has dampened out any plans for Pride Week of 2020, the Toronto police would have likely been banned. In 2018, the crimes of Bruce MacArthur warranted banning officers from the parade completely, but this was not the first time. In 2017, it was due to racial bias concerns. In 2019, Pride Toronto members would again not allow uniformed officers to march in the parade as there has been what is called a long broken relationship between the Toronto police and the members of the LGBTQ2S community. As the community heals, it is important not to forget the victims of Bruce MacArthur and their families. The legacy of Andrew Kinsman was activism, which brought about a sense of community and strength that each victim in their own right experienced as they enjoyed lives in the gay village. Salim Essen was an insightful philosopher and was loved by everybody. Abdul Bazir Faizi was known to be an exceptional father to his children, giving everything he had for them. Sarush Mahmoodi was said to be liked by absolutely everybody. Karushna was one of many siblings and made the incredibly difficult choice to leave his family behind in Sri Lanka to come to Toronto and provide for them abroad. Dean Lissowick never knew a stranger. He was an activist in his own right, an advocate always looking out for the safety of others. Majid Kehan left behind three grandchildren and a large, loving family and Skanda Navaratnam was known for his laugh and charisma. I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. Make sure to subscribe either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and feel free to leave a five-star review and some comments. I'd love to hear from you. 
And again, like I mentioned before, feel free to email me at crimopediapod at hotmail.com if you have any case suggestions. Maybe I haven't heard of it before, but if you put something forward to me, I will definitely add it to my list. Until next time, everybody, be well, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.